Welcome to Moonshot. I'm Christopher Lawson. Two, one, ignition. We got liftoff. On the 3rd of March, just a day before this episode was published, SpaceX made a significant step towards their goal of sending humans to Mars. The company performed a test launch of their Starship spacecraft, designed to gather valuable data on how the ship performs both through takeoff and landing. Two plus 30 seconds, Starship 10 has liftoff. It's headed to 10 kilometers on its test flight from Boca Chica in Cameron County, Texas. SN10 launched without a hitch, flying to a height of 10 kilometers, shutting off its engines, and then performing a controlled descent back to Earth. And then, of course, in true SpaceX style, Starship landed successfully right back on the launch pad where it took off. Third time's a charm, as the saying goes. We've had a successful soft touchdown on the landing pad. That's capping a beautiful test flight of Starship 10. This feat is impressive, and the livestream camera angles just look like something from science fiction. Many people on Twitter were actually questioning whether this was really happening or if it was animated. It just looked that good and that impressive. Once the cameras shut off though, SN10 did actually go out with a bang after some kind of malfunction, leaving Elon Musk to tweet, RIP SN10, honourable discharge. SpaceX is clearly making significant progress in the commercial space race, but they aren't the only company making significant progress. And we've spoken to several companies in the past about what they're doing to commercialise space. So now it's time to look back. We're going to revisit some of our old stories and give you an update to see where those companies are right now and what progress they've made over the last couple of years. That's coming up on this episode of Moonshot. SpaceX might have its sights set on Mars, but it makes most of its money through contracts. That is, a government or a company will pay SpaceX to send satellites or even humans into orbit. And much of the money made in space is through satellites. Now, back in 2018, we spoke to Peter Beck, the CEO of New Zealand-based Rocket Lab, a launch provider that's become one of the go-to companies if you want to send a small satellite into space. Now, there's been some major developments with Rocket Lab over the past month, but before we dive into that, I want to take you back to our original interview so that you can get a feel for what Rocket Lab was trying to achieve, and we'll come back and I'll give you an update on where they are now. I've always been interested in space as long as I can remember. So, um, you know, it was probably, um, you know, my father taking me outside and actually showing me a satellite in the sky um, and, uh, and you know, looking at looking at this thing that man had put up there, this little star whizzing across the sky and then kind of, you know, as a, as a, as a young kid starting to ask the big questions, well, what are all these other stars and these are suns? Do they have planets? Oh, yeah, they probably have planets. Oh, it's people on those planets? Maybe. Um, so for me, it was, you know, I don't know what age it was, but very, very young. Um, 
you know, it's always just been such a fascinating thing. And and uh, you know, look, people people fully understand, you know, where they live, you know, what city they live in and what country they live in. But actually, we live in a solar system and a universe. So it's you know, for me, it's always just been fascinating. This is Peter Beck the CEO and founder of New Zealand-based Rocket Lab, a company building launch vehicles for small satellites. The mission of Rocket Lab is is to democratise access to space. So um, the, the small satellite industry is is growing at, a, at an exponential rate uh, and we see large geosynchronous platforms uh, disaggregating into a number of small satellites. But the problem is, is launch... Uh, launch cost, but more importantly, launch frequency. And uh, we saw this, um, you know, about four years ago. That that really the the key to enabling the small satellite revolution was launch frequency. So um, what Rocket Lab is really about is, uh, is is creating regular and reliable access to space to uh, to enable um, some uh, the, the small satellite industry to to really grow and do the amazing things that it that it's predicted to do. Rocket Lab is aggressively chasing the launch market for small satellites, and they're a couple of years ahead of companies like Gilmore Space Technologies and also Virgin Orbit. They've moved into commercial operations, and that means they'll be looking to launch an awful lot of rockets. The, the, the goal of the company from day one was to achieve a high launch frequency, and we had to do a number of innovative things. Obviously, there's some technology which we can talk about later, but uh, one of the biggest constraints was the launch site, and all the launch sites in America are all federal or government-owned. So we needed to uh, we needed to find a way um, of uh, of you know creating the world's first private orbital launch range, and um, you know if you look at America, there's a lot goes on there. There's a lot of shipping traffic and there's a lot of um, aircraft traffic. It's very difficult to achieve both launch frequency but also launch azimuth, so the direction that you need to put stuff on an orbit. So we we sort of stood back and looked at the problem and said, well, um, how can we solve that problem? And uh, ultimately, we had to go to a different country to solve that. And uh, that was that was New Zealand. You know, when you're talking about launching stuff into space, a, a small island nation in the middle of nowhere is exactly what you need. And that's what we had. You know, after we completed uh, all of the, the regulatory processes, um, the launch site is licensed to launch every 72 hours. That, that, that's an incredible frequency. There's probably no other launch site on Earth that could do that many launches. No, that, that's that's true. Yeah, no, and, and it's you know it's the only private orbital launch site um, operational in the world today, and uh, it, it's fundamental to to the whole vision of the company, which was to you know provide access, and um, you know every seventy two hours sounds like a lot, but when you talk about air travel, you know commercial air travel, it, it's it's very infrequent, but um, you know for the space industry that that that's a lot and. You know, when you're looking at constellations of, you know, tens if not hundreds of satellites, then that's that's the kind of frequency you need to be able to service the infrastructure. As you heard when we spoke with Adam Gilmore, a lot of the rockets being built for small satellites are only designed to carry a very tiny payload. Gilmore is designing his rockets to carry payloads of up to 400 kilograms, and Rocket Labs is even smaller, with a maximum payload of around 225 kilograms. And Peter says that the need to provide rockets to carry these nanosatellites was very obvious even back in 2006 when he founded the company. I started the company over 10 years ago, and to me, 
um, at the time of starting Rocket Lab, it was very, very obvious which way the space industry was going to go. Um, if you look at Moore's Law and, and how it applies to electronics, um, it, it's, it's very obvious that that's going to apply itself to satellites, given that satellites are largely electronics. So, um, you know, satellites were, were, were going to shrink and um, there was, there's always going to be a need for increased access to space. So if you put those two things together, it, it's kind of an, an obvious proposition that uh, a, a launch vehicle for small satellites launched frequently is, is an obvious you know, requirement in the market. And um, you know, we, we saw that quite some time ago, and you know, as a result, we, we, we've been able to, to get uh, to market first with, with a vehicle that uh, meets, that, meets, meets that niche. Were you aware of the need of like having to build your own facility, etc., when you first started? Uh, some of it is obviously learnt along the way, of course. But um, you know, we, we really only started the Electron program um, in Vega uh, four years ago, and um, you know, it, it, it was it was very obvious that very quickly that um, you know that that, it, that the launch was a massive constraint, and and you know, the romance of building the rocket is is always alluring, and that's where people kind of start, but. For us, you'd have to break it up into three different things. You know, one is obviously the technology. Um, that's a third of this, third of the magnitude of the project. And then second is regulation or regulatory is probably the second, you know, magnitude of the project. And then uh, third is infrastructure because, you know, building a launch site is, you know, if anybody's thinking about it, I wouldn't, I don't recommend it. It's a, it's a mammoth undertaking. Um, you know, we had to upgrade internet backhauls to entire townships and put tracking stations on remote islands in the Pacific and, you know, build lots of roads and, and all the kinds of things that you wouldn't normally associate with um, with the space industry. Let's talk a little bit about the technology behind your rockets. Space is always seen as this, like, really expensive business to get into, but with new technology, 3D printing, etc., the cost can be reduced. How are you utilizing, uh, you know, new technology in your rockets to make sure that you can access space on the cheap? So, I mean, we, we started the whole project with two requirements, and that was launch at least once a week and uh, launch affordably. And those two requirements drove everything we did. So when it came to things like uh, rocket propulsion, you know, how can we build rocket engines at a, at a much reduced cost and a, and a much reduced, you know, much increased frequency, you know, certain certain pieces of of technology really stood out, and one of them was obviously three D printing or additive additive manufacturing. And we started uh, experimenting with that when you know most people were making bottle openers. Um, so, you know, it was really uh, it was really about identifying the, the the breakthrough technologies that were going to have you know the, the most disruptive effect and backing them and uh, and really pushing hard. And you know. Um, Ernest Rutherford had a famous saying, you know, we have have no money, so we have to think, and uh, you know that's um, you know that, that that kind of formed the basis, and you see the engines named Rutherford. Um, it wasn't you know that we were we're completely short short of capital because we have you know very uh, very good investors, but um, certainly not the capital that a government would uh, have to, to throw into a project like this. Unlike Gilmore Space, which is using a hybrid rocket engine, Rocket Lab uses a liquid mixture containing a mix of liquid oxygen and RP-1, which is a highly reformed type of kerosene and is a similar sort of fuel to what SpaceX use on the Falcons. And given that SpaceX is leading the charge when it comes to space exploration, I asked Peter what he thought of Elon Musk's plans to send people to Mars. 
Oh, I think it's inspiring for everybody. Um, you know, for us, um, what we're more focused on, obviously, is and where we think we can have a greater impact than human spaceflight is to, uh, you know, to actually build infrastructure on orbit that uh, that, that affects everybody um, down on Earth on a daily basis. Um, look, going to Mars is an incredibly noble and exciting thing, and um, you know, I'm sure we're going to get there um, get there with with Elon in front. But um, you know, we're, we're more focused on how we can improve everybody's life on, on Earth, um, daily life, by building infrastructure on orbit um, that, that, um, that can, can really have a massive effect. Would you want to go? Like if Elon called you up and said, hey, do you want to come to Mars? <laughs> Would you go? No, no, no. Certainly not. No, no. I think I can have a better impact on, on this planet. Now, that was a portion of my interview with Rocket Lab CEO Peter Beck back in 2018. And the company has advanced significantly since then. So right after this break, I'll bring you up to date with Rocket Lab. Since my interview with Peter Beck back in 2018, a lot has changed with Rocket Lab. Not only did the company successfully launch their Electron rockets, but the next mission that they have scheduled for later in March 2021, called They Go Up So Fast, will be their 19th launch, and that will also carry the 100th satellite that the company has sent into space. Now, that launch will also include one of the company's own photon satellites, because since I spoke with Peter, Rocket Lab expanded from being a launch provider to now also making their own satellites. And their next launch will contain a demonstration photon satellite ahead of a contract that they've won with NASA to send a satellite into lunar orbit. But that's far from the biggest news that's happened with Rocket Lab. The Electron rocket defined a number of industry firsts. First carbon fibre rocket to orbit, in fact. Somebody told me once, that was going to be impossible. Then it's reusable. But then there's the engines. The Rutherford rocket engine. The very first 3D printed rocket engine ever to go into orbit. And in fact, also the very first electric pump cycle rocket engine ever produced. When I spoke with Peter, Rocket Lab wasn't looking at reusability of their Electron rockets because they designed a system to make them cheaply. They were designed to be thrown away. However, the company has now started recovering and they'll be reusing their rockets. That's huge news in itself. But it's still not the biggest news that's happened to Rocket Lab. There's some things we said we'd never do. But we're going to build a big rocket. It's called Neutron. And behind me... It's just a fairing. This is a purpose-built mega constellation building machine for all the mega constellations of today and of tomorrow. Rocket Lab was always exclusively focused on the small satellite market, but they've recently announced that they're going to develop a large rocket, one that's big enough to send huge payloads into space. And this rocket can even transport humans. That's a massive pivot, and no doubt it's sparked by the success that's been seen with companies like SpaceX. And these large rockets are focused on mega constellations, that is launching dozens or hundreds of small satellites at one time. But in an interview with CNBC, 
Peter Beck indicated that you wouldn't go to all the effort of building a large launch vehicle without also making it capable of human space travel. And these large rockets are of course very expensive, which is probably why Rocket Lab thought it was time to raise some cash. And they're doing that by going public. But unlike most initial public offerings, Rocket Lab is going through a process known as SPAC. That is a special purpose acquisition company. The company that they're merging with called Vector Acquisition Corp was specifically designed to acquire another business. It doesn't have any other purpose other than to make an acquisition. And Rocket Lab is that acquisition. The SPAC process offers a much quicker path to IPO than the traditional process. So for a company like Rocket Lab trying to build a large launch vehicle, you need cash and you need to get it fast. This is from the CNBC interview with Peter Beck. And, uh, you know, we, we're on a, a slow but methodical path to an IPO, um, but uh, we, we chose a spec path to really accelerate uh, our, our vision and, and our goals here. And, um, you know, we have, we have uh, obviously a very a stable uh, launch business with strong revenues, but we're looking to really take it to the next level. And, uh, you know, having access to public capital enables us to embark on the, you know, the next program, which is a very large launch vehicle. Uh, it also gives us a, a public currency to do some of the M&A that, uh, that, that, um, uh, that we really want to do. We'll keep following Rocket Lab's progress as they go public and build this large launch vehicle. And we'll bring you further updates in the future as they happen. And after this quick break, we'll take a look back at one of the companies which is hitching a ride on Rocket Lab's next mission. One of the companies that's hitching a ride on Rocket Lab's next mission is Fleet Space Technologies. I spoke with the CEO, Flavia Tadanardini, back in early 2018, and at the time the company was yet to launch a satellite. Now, before I give you an update on the business, let's take a look back at a bit of my interview with Flavia to give you a better idea about what Fleet Space was trying to achieve. You'll also hear the voice of Andrew Moon, the co-host of this podcast. I come from a very big family of all engineers, quite high achiever, but I was little, I wanted to do space. I was that kind of very nearly five years old, you know, that started creating little rockets in the backyard, and uh, yeah, I'm that kind of person. And, and just did what I wanted. I wanted to work in space. It's, sometimes I think it just, just what I was born to do is like, I don't know, I don't know, it's a curse, but I love it. So my name is Flavia Tatanardini and I'm the CEO of Fleet Space Technologies. Fleet Space is a company that I co-founded a couple of years ago, uh, my second startup, and we are building uh, a digital nervous system around Earth, launching 100 nanosatellites. Fleet Space Technologies is based in Adelaide in South Australia, and as Flavia alluded to, the company is planning to create this constellation of nanosatellites to become the back-end infrastructure of a range of new Internet of Things devices. Think of it like what a phone network is to your smartphone. We need to improve food production. We need to pay attention of um, water wastage and so forth. So we need to measure. So there are a lot of industries from agri-tech, environmental, even in you know, the shipping industry. And uh, we waste something like 50% of our food in supply chains that they finally want to measure. And what happened is that, okay, we can deploy sensors, but how are we going to connect them? 
because everything we have done in the past 20 years, 3G, 4G, 5G, is to connect us, to give you the chance to use your iPhone. It's not really to connect sensors in a farm or have a smart cities and so forth. So the idea of, of IoT, 75 billion devices, without internet to support them. So this is why at Fleet we thought, okay, maybe it's time to create something, a totally different internet connection for things. You've heard this word constellation come up a number of times already. And while most people associate a constellation with a pattern of stars, the same concept applies to satellites. GPS is a great example of a constellation of satellites, a network of satellites that work together to provide exact location data. And Flavia's big, bold nanosatellite bet hasn't gone unnoticed. Fleet Space Technologies has attracted investor interest from the likes of Blackbird Ventures and Atlassian's Mike Cannon Brooks. CubeSats are a particularly attractive portion of the market because they're cheap to produce in comparison to a traditional satellite. So more or less, to give you an idea, to launch a big, big satellite, uh, you know, one that we are used to see for our TV, you might really end up spending uh, $800 million just to build it. And most probably $800 million to launch it. It takes five years to build longer time to launch and you cross fingers doesn't blow up during launch. Nanosatellites, totally different order of magnitude. You need more to achieve the same, but most probably a constellation. This is how we call it when we launch many of them. It costs um, 20 times less. So one of these little satellites could cost around you know, $500,000 or a million. And uh, to launch them is a friction of the cost because they fly very close to Earth. Big satellites, they fly 36 or 38,000 kilometers far from us. It's quite far. So you need a lot of power to push them up there. But these guys fly at 500 kilometers from Earth because they are small and they stay there long. So a friction of the cost is really a friction of the cost. Right now, Fleet is preparing to launch the first two of their satellites. And eventually, the constellation of satellites will allow anyone to connect a smart device to Fleet's network. The other big difference with Fleet's nanosatellites is disposability. Unlike the costly giant satellites that make remote TV crosses possible, these satellites only have a lifespan of just a couple of years, and the low cost of production and launch also means they can be continuously upgraded. You don't want them to last really long. It's like your iPhone. You must probably want to change it every two years, right? We are used to launch satellites, and they are up there for 50 years. So we use technology of 50 years ago. These little guys, we can update them three, maybe three years. It's really like an iPhone. So you got solar panels, you got batteries, you got everything to allow them to operate to three to five years, and then you change them. You update it with a new tech. So what they do, they talk with this kind of um, gateway on the ground. So you are, you are a farmer or in any industry, and you want to connect 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 sensors in your field, you buy this little guy and you put it in your field, it's plug and play and you connect. So you create a local internet connectivity everywhere you go. Fleet has a small factory not far from the Adelaide airport. And like any startup, it's very lean and still feels very much like a company dealing with rapid growth. Flavia gave me a tour of the site and given the company started just a couple of years ago, they've come an extraordinary long way in a very short space of time. We wanted a warehouse because you start small but you grow very very quickly 
in April we were like two people and now we're like 25. <laughs> there is uh, no space anymore. You'll see upstairs. So we are building this mission control here. It's a little bit outside the city, very close to the airport. It's really good. We, we put these shipping containers to do some sort of uh, clean rooms where we can assemble the satellites. And there is all um, open air electric assembly. And these guys, because we work in in farms and uh, you know in oceans, they assemble you know buoys and color tracking, all sorts of things here. So you know, three D printing. So slowly, this place is getting busier and busier. But just because these nano satellites are small doesn't mean they don't pack an awesome amount of technology. Just think of the power that you can fit in an iPhone, and then think of how many of those phones you could fit in a shoebox. What are some of the things that go on a satellite? So a satellite is uh, it's a stack of uh, what we call PCB, so printing circuit board that I show you now, and they've got uh, the electrical power system, the computer, the attitude control, the radio. So every single subsystem a satellite is on a is on a card, is on a circuit board. Now I think. Paul is working on one of our radios. Hi, Paul. Hi. This is one of the radios, and they look like that, you see? Right. So they are stuck one on top of the other. You can have one unit, or you can have three units, or they are 30 by 10 centimeters, or a little bit bigger, so up to a shoebox size. And on each of them, so one of them, there is a radio that communicates to the ground, so that one is the one that communicates to our client. Okay or attitude control system to make sure that the satellite is in the right position. All the system it talks to a solar panel. So yeah, they are all very high-tech, miniaturized subsystems. How long have you been with Fleet? I'm actually in here as a, a contractor to uh, develop the software that's talking between the radio transmission module and the small onboard computer. And its job is to actually communicate with the ground station and transfer data and we're translating the data we're given into standard internet protocols so the idea is it will look up there in space like uh, like something on the internet and is that is that sort of like a fairly complex uh, thing to sort of like decode that data that you're the, dealing with the data itself not so much um, the trickiness comes into the fact that when of course the satellites orbiting the earth you are continuously losing contact and then gaining contact with the various ground stations during the orbit. So the tricky part there is to actually make sure that you don't lose any data in those gaps. So you pick up the data when you can, and you wait until you're in contact again, and then transmit what you've got and receive what you've got. How do you, how do, you do that when the satellite's just like whizzing around at like such a high speed? There must be like a very short window of time where you can transfer data. Totally. Yeah. How, how do you do that? As fast as you can when you've got that. When you've got the signal, you've got to go, right, let's go. <laughs> Transmit and receive as fast as you can go to get everything done. And then you lose contact again and then wait for the next signal to come along. How much data would you send in, in like a... So Internet of Things is bits of data. So don't think about, you know, people, the type of Skype type of data. So it's, it's kilobits, bits of data. Okay. But we aggregate, so we got a little bit more data, but still it's, it's a friction, it's a few megabits of data. So when uh, the, these aggregators, this modem gets the data, when they see the satellites, they forward the data, the satellites store the data, when they see ground station. So it's a, it's a quite complex communication system. But yeah, this is what you do with a constellation in Leo. That was part of my interview with Flavia Taranardini back in 2018. 
And since then, Fleet Space has put several satellites into space. On Rocket Lab's next mission, Fleet Space will see their fifth satellite launch. The other big news to happen with Fleet is that in December, the company announced their involvement in a project called Seven Sisters, an Australian lunar exploration mission. The project will support NASA's Artemis program and send sensors to the moon in 2023 to search for water and other resources. Not only that, but the mission will help Australia gain ground in the global space race. The companies forming the burgeoning Australian space industry are keen for Australia to take a lead role in space exploration, and the Seven Sisters project will be a key part of that. And while there are other organisations involved in the project, Fleet Space is certainly in the driver's seat. That's all we have for this episode of Moonshot. If you want to find the original interviews from this episode, I've put links to them in the show notes. Moonshot is a production of Lawson Media and it's hosted by me, Christopher Lawson, and also Andrew Moon. Our theme music comes from Breakmaster Cylinder and our artwork is by Andrew Millist. If you want to chat to us on social media, just search for Moonshot Pod on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And you can also find old versions of the podcast on our website, moonshot.audio. We'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks for listening.